0: Afghan Cuisine, one of Manchester's best-kept secrets. It's located at 86 Wilmslow Road, so the secret's now out. M145AL, also known as the Curry Mile. I had lunch there on Friday this week with John Chapman, a great friend here at the church, and two American visitors to Manchester. After a terrific lunch, we stood up and we were putting on our coats and John was putting on his big hat that he has. And I became aware that there was a man standing right behind me. Close enough to touch. He was standing on a small rug. And he was staring straight ahead intently. I put on my coat and looked again. And he disappeared. It wasn't John Chapman trying to avoid paying the bill. As some of you are thinking. It was one of the staff of the restaurant. And he was praying. I guess he was in that particular spot. Because it's a convenient place upstairs. A bit quieter. To find a place facing east. Facing Mecca, facing the holiest place on earth in the mind of Muslims and to join with Muslims all over the world. There are, over, there are one billion Muslim people and they are required to pray facing the same direction five times a day. Now that's a lot of people. Religion. It's a big reality for most people in our world and for most people in our city. Let me share a few statistics with you. Russia where the curry Mile is situated, has about 14,000 residents. Of those, more than 5,000 are Muslim people. And that's just the figures from the 2011 census. The reality may be far higher. Moss Side, where we are here, looking out the window, Moss Side has nearly 19,000 residents and climbing. And it is likely that over 5,000 of them are Muslims mostly from Africa or Pakistan and some from India. Now, that's over 10,000 Muslim people living in very close proximity to where you're sitting now. Then think about other religions. Manchester has a large Roman Catholic population. If you drive around, you quickly see a large number of Roman Catholic church buildings, often with a school and a social club attached. Many of these have their roots in the Irish community. St. Agnes, St. Ambrose, St. Bernard's, St. Catherine's, St. Cuthbert's, St. James's, St. John's, R.C., St. Kentigern's, St. Wilfrid's, Divine Mercy, and the Holy Name. And that's just South Manchester Primary Schools. On the days when children at these schools are going to take their first Holy Communion, you will see seven or eight-year-old kids dressed up to the nines with the girls wearing beautiful dresses that are bought specially for the occasion then there's St. Andrew's, St. Chrysostom's, St. James's, St. John's, C of E, St. Joseph's, St. Luke's, St. Mary's, St. Paul's, and other Church of England schools. Manchester is also home to over 25,000 Jewish people, several thousand Hindus, several thousand Sikhs, and I've probably only scratched the surface when it comes to religious observance. Atheism is on the up, but the majority of people. In this city, the majority of our neighbours claim some form of religious belief. For many, religion is a powerful force in their lives. Religion matters. What does this image tell you? This is in Hume, a little bit north of here. The Darul Aman Mosque, it opened in 2012. The BBC reported that over 1,500 Muslims came to the opening. The £1 million mosque on Greenhaze Lane in Hume is thought to be the second largest of its kind in Britain. It was built to serve an Islamic movement called Ahmadiyya and was funded by the community. The North West youth president said, this is a lot of money, but it's quite amazing how willing people were to contribute. We're talking about men, women and even children giving up their pocket money just for this purpose, to build a house of God. The mosque is expected to accommodate 1,000 worshippers every week and is thought to be the second largest in Western Europe for that set. Now, what does that tell you? Why would you do that? Why would you spend a million pounds building a mosque in Hume? Only if religion matters to you. Only if it's very, very important. Important to preserve a sense of identity. Important to preserve your culture. Important to transmit to the next generation. In Bible times, the Jewish people had been scattered all over the known world and wherever they put down roots, they'd done something similar. They used to build something called a synagogue. Now, for those who were unlikely ever to make the trip to Jerusalem and get to the temple, the local synagogue was the outpost for their own faith, their own religion and community. They came together on the Sabbath day, that's Saturday, they read the Bible, the Old Testament as we call it, they prayed, somebody would preach. And it was to people doing that in southern Turkey that Paul and Barnabas went. We read an account, Michelle's just read it to us, of their visit to a place called Pisidian Antioch. Paul and Barnabas are Jewish men who'd become followers of Jesus. And now they've become the first Christian missionaries. They got on a boat and they went to this place. And they go to the synagogue. And the leaders invite Paul to come up and speak. That perhaps they could tell from his clothes that he was a, a rabbi. And that rabbis were expected to be able to preach on the spot. And what follows is the only recorded sermon we have of a sermon given in a synagogue. Now why are we looking at this today? Because we're doing a four-part series on the gospel. The gospel is the good news. It's the heart of Christianity. We're asking... What's it all about? And these sermons in the book of Acts are Christianity unplugged, unvarnished, unpainted, stripped back to the basics, the essentials, the heart of it. And what we see today is the gospel, the good news, being addressed to a group of sincere religious people. It's the gospel to Jews and to converts. This is how the gospel is spoken to the religious Next week, we'll think about how the gospel is communicated to a rather different group of people. So let me ask you a question. What do you think of religion? What do you think of religion? Now, some people here, I'm pretty sure, are skeptics. Maybe you say you're an atheist, you're irreligious. You might be curious, but you're full of doubts. It doesn't seem to stack up. And you probably think that I'm going to try and persuade you to get religious like a sort of dodgy snake oil salesman in the wild west but you are wrong I want to show you today that true Christianity is not about religion when it's properly understood true Christianity is entirely different from religion Then there are other people here today who are religious given the diversity of Manchester You could be coming from all sorts of different backgrounds. I don't know you all. You you probably expect that I'm going to try and make you feel bad and work harder. Because that's what preachers are supposed to do, isn't it? Make you feel bad and try harder? Well, you're wrong as well. (laughs) Because when we turn to Paul's synagogue sermon, we find that it is absolutely unpredictable. He says something so fresh and unexpected that in verse 42, people beg to hear more. And the following week, nearly the whole city turn up at the door of the synagogue. At the same time, the leaders of the synagogue, the guys who invited him to speak, are consumed with jealousy and they heap abuse on him. And this is what Paul does. Everywhere he goes in the known world, he goes to the synagogue first and probably preaches this sermon. And that preaching sometimes leads to riots and death threats. What is it that provokes such a strong reaction? Something unexpected, something fresh. I've got three points today. The promise of religion, the problem with religion, and the power of the gospel. Firstly, the promise of religion. Now remember who Paul is talking to. These are the people who actually got out of bed. They're the ones who set their alarm early on Saturday morning. They don't have a lion. They get up and do their hair and put on their Saturday best and go to the synagogue. These are the ones who've kept the faith in a foreign land. And the non-Jews who are serious enough about God to join them. These people are hoping for something. They want to hear from God. So Paul tells them a story. It's the story of Israel. And this story has three hopes. There's a hope for favour, a hope for forgiveness, and a hope for the future. First of all, there's favour from God. Paul tells his audience how God chose their ancestors and he adopted them and brought them to be his own special people. He cared for them while they were slaves in Egypt. He caused them to grow as a people and become numerous and prosperous. He rescued them. He gave them a land of their own. He gave them leaders. And all of this is telescoped into a few short verses. It's it's the brief history of Israel. And it's a story of favor from God. It's also a story of forgiveness. In verse 18, Paul says that God endured the conduct of the people in the wilderness. Now, that is an understatement. The people were unbelievable. They acted like spoiled children most of the time. And God again and again had to bail them out. Rescue them, warn them, cajole them, discipline them. He forgave them over and over again. And this then carried on in the land when they settled there. God sent them leaders, first of all judges, but they repeatedly turned against God and followed other gods called idols. Then they demanded a king. Now this actually was the height of insolence because God was their king. Yet even here he forgave them and he forbore them. And he turned their demand for a king into a gracious provision. First of all, he gave them the kind of king that they'd asked for. A big, handsome, impressive, tall man. If you want a great leader, he should be tall. But he stood out in a crowd. He's always head and shoulders above everybody else. But this king, whose name was Saul continually overstepped the mark of his authority and he had to be removed by God. Then God gave him the king they hadn't asked for, David. He was the youngest son from a modest family. He was a shepherd boy. Think minimum wage. Yet God made David the greatest king that Israel had ever known and ever would. And he promised that he would bring a ruler from David's line who would rule in peace over the whole world. And even that was an act of forgiveness. David was far from perfect. He slept with one of his soldier's wives. He got her pregnant. He tried to cover it up. Things got out of hand and it led to the soldier's death. David was stopped in his tracks by one of God's spokesmen, the prophet Nathan. Yet even this God forgave. And notice, when Paul retold the story, he says that God ...called David a man after my own heart. Extraordinary how gracious God was. God looks at the whole of a person's life... ...not just individual failures. Yes, David sinned. But he turned back to God. And God forgave him. Favour. With God. Forgiveness. And thirdly, a future. Because what uses favour from God... ...when you're dead? Death is the great punctuation mark... ...that we all face... And I dare say most of us are not ready for it. Whenever someone dies, it's a horrid shock, isn't it? It's hard to believe that they've gone. They leave a gap that can't be filled. And Paul reminds his audience that the Bible speaks to this issue as well. The Bible actually promises something that is frankly incredible. Resurrection from the dead. Not life up in the clouds with the little baby angels playing a harp, but physical, embodied, recognizable resurrection. He quotes one of David's own poems, which says that God would not let his Holy One see decay. That's from one of the Psalms. It was David's way of saying that somehow, God would keep his king from death. God would even defeat the final enemy. Now just, just imagine all of that for a moment, will you? Let's put it together. A good life, enjoying the favor of God, A clean conscience, knowing that you've been forgiven and you've got a clean slate. A full life, living forever, not fearing death. Isn't that what we all want? Isn't that what religions are actually yearning for? Religion captures something of the human spirit. It's longing for freedom from misery. Freedom from sin. Freedom from even death. It's what we all want. And that's the promise of religion favour, forgiveness and a future. Why build a million pound mosque in Hume? Why prostrate yourself on the floor of a restaurant? Why build school after school after school? Why say your prayers fast, give money, go on pilgrimage, go to church? People think religion will give them favour with God, forgiveness and a future. We want an answer to death, we want a better tomorrow. And that is what the religion aspires to, that's what it promises. If you talk to your Muslim neighbours, if you talk to your Roman Catholic friends, this is what we hope for. That religion will give us these things. But there's just one problem. It doesn't work. Religion doesn't work. That's the problem of religion. The problem isn't that it causes wars often hear this, it's become a bit of a myth in our culture that religion causes wars. It's been pretty well debunked recently by a a scholar called William Kavanagh. The problem is deeper than that. The problem is that religion doesn't work. For a start, it's completely bound up with culture. Traditional peoples repeat what their ancestors did. Now that can be very rich, very beautiful, but what does it actually achieve? Why would we think that repeating our traditions would have any traction with God. Secondly, religion often lacks substance. A lot of peculiar claims are made, but you can't ask questions. People accept things with blind faith, but when you push a little bit and ask why do you think that your religion would help you to get favor from God, there's little solid basis. And so religion can't fulfill its own hopes. People live in hope that God will accept them and make their lives good, but they have no guarantee, no confidence. And that's because our religion rests on an insecure foundation. If you are building your life on the strength of your own goodness, how strong is your foundation? If you're building your life On the strength of your own holiness and purity. How impressed do you think God will be? So what this means then. Is that religion. Makes people insecure. They go to extreme lengths. In their devotion. Sometimes they treat the body harshly. Deny themselves things. Or even go to the length of suicide bombing. Because they're desperate to win God's favor. But they sense deep down that they're not really good enough. Now, you may think that I'm exaggerating the problem, but let me ask you five questions. And I'm particularly asking those of you here who have religious faith. I want you to see what your religion has failed to achieve. Firstly, do you ever do something for nothing? Do you ever do something for nothing? Do your beliefs make you generous? I'm not talking about the odd handout, buying the big issue. I mean truly, madly, deeply generous. Radically giving away your resources, your stuff. Radically sharing your home. Radically giving your time to people. Giving of yourself to people when there's no payback. I'm not talking about giving to family members. That doesn't count. I mean, do you do things for nothing? Or do you always expect payment? Secondly, how do you respond when people let you down? What is it that really presses your buttons when someone forgets an appointment, or they turn up late, or they fail to deliver, they don't do what they said they were going to do, they step out of line, they disappoint you in some way. How do you respond? Thirdly, do you forgive and forget? Are you a forgiving person? Do you let things go, or do you keep grudges? Are there people right now who you are not speaking to? People who will not look you in the eye, you won't look them in the eye, you're hard and cold towards them. Are you nursing a grudge that has been going on for more than a day? If somebody knew your thoughts, could your heart be described as gracious and forgiving or something else? Fourthly, how inclusive are you? And again, I'm not talking about how inclusive we are to family or the people we like. We're all inclusive towards people like us. I'm talking about those outside the tribe. People of other ethnic groups. People of lower social status. People with a disability. The poor. The smelly. The less educated. Those who are outside of our tribe. Are you warm, welcoming? open and gracious to all? Fifthly, how do you react to being overlooked? When you are snubbed, forgotten, or treated with less dignity than you think you deserve, how do you respond? Now, to those of you here who follow a religion, let me respectfully say, I think you've got a big problem. Because I don't think your religion can make you answer those five questions in a way that pleases God. Not for a nanosecond. It doesn't work. and religion doesn't make us the kind of people that God wants. Those five questions illustrate the big problem with religion. This is the kind of life it creates. Ready? A tit-for-tat attitude. Tending towards being stingy. Only doing things when there's something in it for me. Unforgiving and deeply resentful when people hurt you or let you down. Really making people feel it when they disappoint you. Keeping a record of wrongs, remembering what they did against you. Being prickly, easily offended, demanding and critical. Being tribal, looking down on those who are outside of our group. Easily angered when not given respect because you feel you deserve it. Now, that is not a very attractive picture. But what I want to suggest, friends, is that that is what religion tends to produce Not fully, plenty of great, lovely, warm religious people. Not fully, not all these things in one person at one time, but this is the tendency. Because if we are building our acceptance and our forgiveness from God on, on our own efforts, it is bound to produce this ugly life. Because if you feel you have to work really, 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 really hard for everything, and whatever you have is only yours because you earned it, then you will be hard on other people. You will tend to be unforgiving. You will tend to look down on them. You will tend to be proud. You will tend to exclude. This is what religion tends to produce in the human spirit proud, unforgiving, ungracious, and tribal mentality. And here's the sting in the tail. Religion has enough truth and light in it. I'm talking about every religion. Every religion has enough truth and light in it to make you see that you're failing, that you're not good enough, and that then leads you to be deeply insecure. Will I make it to heaven? How will I be reincarnated? Will God accept me on the final day? Do you see how deep our problem is? And that is the situation that Paul speaks into in his synagogue sermon in Pisidian Antioch. Basically, he says, Listen, friends, fellow Israelites, you want God's future, but everyone knows that the great King David, the one who wrote, You will not let your Holy One see decay, everyone knows he's dead and buried and rotted away. You want God's favor. But everyone knows that the nation of Israel is under Roman rule. And you guys are living in Turkey. At least you're near the beach. Now where do you go from there? The problem. The problem of religion. And the answer to the problem is not more religion. But let me suggest the answer to the problem is not no religion either. The answer is a third way. And that way is called gospel power of the gospel. This is a different thing altogether from religion or irreligion. It's a third way. Gospel means good news, great news, amazing news. And Paul gets to it right at the climax of his sermon. I'll read this out to you again. Here it is. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. It means he died. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But Jesus... The one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to see that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. You see what Paul just did? He's taken the things that religion yearns for and he says you can have them, you can have them in Jesus for free. He says that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. How do you get to be forgiven for every wrong thing you've ever done, every wrong thing you've ever thought, every wrong word you've ever said? How do you you get to be forgiven? Not, Not by doing penance, not by payback, but by trusting Jesus. This sermon in, in the book of Acts is a kind of precy, sort of a shorthand account of what was actually said. Paul, much likely, likely, spoke for a lot longer. And when the New Testament explains the good news about Jesus and about how God forgives us, it always goes to the cross. It was there in our reading. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. The cross, Jesus was executed unfairly. There was no charge against him. He was innocent. But at the cross, a great exchange was taking place. Jesus Christ was taking the shame and the punishment that was due to my sin and yours and taking it on himself. He stood in our place. He took the blame that was ours so that we could be forgiven. That's what it means for forgiveness of sins to be proclaimed. It's an announcement. It's gone public. If you trust Jesus and ask him to forgive you, no matter what you've done, he will, on the spot, forgive you. And you are embraced by him. You are given a new life then and there. You're given a new heart. God comes to live in you. There it is again in verse 39. Everyone who believes is set free. So all you've got to do is believe. This is not another hoop to jump through. not a high jump, it's not another bunch of rules, not another highway code you have to learn you just have to believe in Jesus trust your life to him ask him to forgive you, he will I remember the day when I finally realised that Jesus Christ died to forgive me I remember the day that I let go and started trusting him to run my life for me I remember the feeling that the lights had come on And a burden had just rolled away. And I knew that life would never be the same again. Becoming a Christian. A follower of Jesus. It's not about getting religious. It's actually when you stop being religious. And you stop all your striving and performance. And you believe. You just look to Jesus Christ. You look to him in your mind's eye. You see him on the cross. The cross of shame. Bearing all your sin and pain. And you look to him and you cry out, Lord, forgive me. My sin put you up there. Forgive me, please. And he promises that if you do that, he will turn his face towards you and forgive. Christ died for sinners. And if you know you are one, if you're sick of sin and self and you want to be free, he is there for you now. Verse 39 again. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification being made right, you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. So let me close with a simple question. Are you now ready to say that you're a Christian? I know if you're hesitating and saying, I don't feel I'm good enough, you're still thinking in terms of yourself you still have the idea that you've got to make yourself good enough somehow you will never be good enough for god nobody ever has been except jesus and so the essence of this message this message of good news of salvation is that he's good enough and that i am in him now do you want that do you want that? Last week we made the offer, if someone wanted to come and talk to me, uh, I would be very happy to chat to you and pray with you, and that would be a privilege. And I've subsequently heard that a couple of people actually did want to do that, but it was a bit intimidating, me, and me being down here at the front. So I've asked a couple of friends this week if they would be happy to pray with people, and where are they? Where's Andrew and Ali? Just stand up with you. This is Andrew. He's the clean-shaven guitarist. This is Ali. They are absolutely lovely. You guys can sit down, thank you. Now these two are going to go off to the classrooms by the creche and just quietly be in there. And if you want to talk to them about becoming a Christian and, and pr- for them to pray with you, they will be there. And they are, both of them are very gentle spirits, so um, you'll be in good hands. Let's pray, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great mercy and compassion. We sang about it earlier on. You're slow to anger and rich in love. And we thank you that your love led you ultimately to send your own dear son, the Lord Jesus, to live the life we should have lived and to die the death we should have died, to make peace with you and to give us forgiveness and to grant us a new life. Thank you for that. I pray now for those here who understand these things and are at the point where they need to trust Jesus. I pray that they would have the courage and the confidence to do that today. And for those who are still looking into this and for for whom it's all really still quite foggy and unclear and have so many questions, please keep them in your grace. Please help them to have the courage to keep going, to keep asking questions and to find you in your own good time. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.